From Troy Public Radio, Troy University, and the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama, this is It Came From the Archives. I'm Greg Phillips. Each episode, we delve into the archives to bring you a topic, introduce you to someone new, or tell you a story about the Wiregrass region and the surrounding area. Our guide is Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University. Today, we're tackling African-American history in the Wiregrass area through the lens of one family in particular. In many ways, life for the Weems family in the mid-20th century was similar to that of other African-American families in Alabama, but in others, their experiences were extremely different. As you'll hear, the Weems owned a 200-acre farm in northeast Houston County, and that opened up several opportunities for their family. The Wiregrass Archives has two important photographs of the Weems, and here's Marty Olaf to tell us more. This collection is the second smallest collection that we have. The smallest collection has one scanned photograph. This has two scanned photographs. And what's, what I find most interesting about this collection, the, the, the Dorothy Brown collection, who is a member of this extended Weems family, um, she gave us these two photographs to scan, and they give you an entrepot into a much deeper world that exists, but you wouldn't think about them unless you started looking at these photographs and, as the American Association of State and Local History likes to say, everything has a history. And so I began looking at these photographs and, and trying to get a little bit more information about them, and it led me to expand beyond the family itself, which is a little bit hard to find. The information on the family is, is privately held mostly. A little bit difficult to, to find, but these photographs open up a, a vista of what life was like uh, for people in the early 20th century. One of the photographs is of two young women standing in front of a building that looks like a schoolhouse in the early 20th century. And then another photograph of a small family group in a mule-drawn wagon in a store parking lot. And this wagon has pneumatic automobile tires on it. This, this photograph is from the 1950s. Well, obviously people were still using mule-drawn wagons on regular basis. Wow. In the, in the late 1950s. Well, let me tell you about how we got these two photographs. Ms. Dorothy Brown, loaned us these photographs and then gave us the scans here at the Wiregrass Archives as part of a project in 2003, a little bit more than a year after I got here, um, to produce a book of county history for the 100th anniversary of Houston County. You know, Houston County was created in 1903. It's the youngest county in Alabama, and it was carved out of mostly Henry County. And my friends in History County, my friends in Henry County are still unhappy about that. <laughs> so they, they're holding a grudge, nevertheless. Um, working with the executive director 
Then out at Landmark Park, the Wiregrass Archives provided a lot of technical services and, and provided uh, gathering services. And what we did was to take a scanner and a laptop computer out to various places in the community throughout all of Houston County and ask the community to bring in photographs that they would like to appear in this book um, from Arcadia Press. And Ms. Brown uh, brought these two photographs and uh, the book is Houston County, The First Hundred Years, published in 2003 by Arcadia Press, and it's still in print. You can still get it. Um, one is a 1941 photograph of Mabel Weems, who at that time was 16 years old, and Yuffie Weems, who was 18 years old, and they are two of the very first graduates from the high school um, at Columbia. Uh, Alabama, the Columbia High School. This was an African-American high school and it was the first high school class of African-Americans that took the 10th, 11th, and 12th grades in the curriculum. Prior to 1939, Alabama only provided through the ninth grade for African-Americans. Wow. In the 1920s, counties began to provide um, accredited high school curricula for white students, but it was only in 1939 after... So there's still over, over a decade's gap. Over, over a decade uh, left. Um, anyway, the, the Weems family lived in Columbia for a long time. Uh, at least the African-American side of the family did. Um, Columbia's a Chattahoochee River port, used to be the largest city in this area before Dothan became the railway hub uh, in the 1880s. Um, members of the family were emancipated um, during emancipation, during Reconstruction, and they eventually were able to purchase 200 contiguous acres of farmland. Contiguous is a big deal. That's 200 acres that they could farm, even though they were different family units, they farmed them together. So they basically had 200 acres that they farmed. Now, the um, uh, 1920s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimated that the average farm size in Alabama was 39 acres. This was, this was huge then. This, this was, was a huge... Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess benefit to them, right? This was this gave them a little bit of I don't want to say in, in, uh, in a leg up because it's certainly hard hard life of farming, but certainly this put them in a better position than many uh, other families would have been at this point. It did two things. First of all, you're right; it's a much larger area. It's five times the size of the average farm in Alabama in uh, the 1920s. Those farms, 39 acres too small to provide uh, sufficient income or even for, to allow for a reasonable life uh, for farmers. Uh, then they had to diversify, which makes it even uh, more difficult. The Weems had four or five families working together, but because they could farm this at an economy of scale, then uh, they could provide for themselves much better than they could as isolated plots of land. Well, and you know, this idea of, of acreage and how we measure land 
uh, came out of the land ordinance, the U.S. land ordinance of um, 1785. I guess it's not really appropriate to say the U.S. land ordinance because we were still under the Articles of Confederation at the time. But to open up the Ohio Territory and, and that so-called Old Northwest, uh, then the Continental, the, the Congress passed uh, the land ordinance. Uh, it allowed for surveys of land and it set up the range and township system of 36 square miles of surveyed land in one square mile blocks. One square mile of land is 640 acres and one quarter, those are called sections, one quarter section was 160 acres and then a quarter of that was 40 acres. So when, when you hear old, old farmers talking about um, or, 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 you know, like in the movies or in songs or something, needing to go out to the lower 40. You know, got to go plow the lower 40. Well, that meant they had 160 acres of land, and that was divided into 40-acre plots. Well, imagine the, uh, the Weems had more than one of those quarter sections, and most people only had one of those 40-acre subsections. That was the average. Most people had a lot smaller than that. Wow. Um, land ownership, because they owned this land, they didn't rent it, they weren't sharecroppers, they owned it. That meant they stayed put. Sharecroppers, even if they were in debt, frequently were able to move, and so they didn't have they had the same kind of tie to the land that renters have to apartments that they live in. You know, somebody else is really responsible for all of the stuff that goes on. When you own a house, you're the one that has to take care of the joint. When you're in an apartment or you're renting a house, if the water heater goes out, that's somebody else's problem. Um, you know, so your connection to the property is different. Well, the Weems owned this land, and so they were there generation after generation, and they could improve the land. They could improve their living situation. It really did give them a, a motivation to become invested, not only in the land, but in the community around the land. And so what kind of investment would you have in your community? not a financial investment, you would have an investment in um, churches, you would have an investment in schools, and you would have an investment in improving infrastructure that may help you but help everybody else at the same time. One of these things that they wanted to improve was, of course, schools and the quality of education that went along uh, with that, and that's where these two photographs, to me, kind of merge, even though the education-specific photograph came a number of years, 18 years, before the family photograph did, but they're still intimately tied together. According to David Hunter, who is a historian of Columbia uh, and the editor of the Columbia Historical society's newsletter, which means he's the guy that writes the whole thing. Um, the town of Columbia had offered education to white students beginning in the 1830s, and it began offering education to black students during Reconstruction. Private citizens or the town 
used taxes. This didn't come from the county or the state to own and maintain their own schools. Then when Houston County formed in 1903, Houston County took over all of the white schools. Well, the black community still supported African-American schools. Education ended in the ninth grade maximum. That was as far as it went. And in the 1920s, like I said earlier, the county began providing for white high schools, and it was 1939 before grades 10, 11, and 12 were made available for African-American students. Now, the school year, the school curriculum being vastly different was one thing, but where we see real differences, where we see real differences, is in what the facilities looked like. Alabama Department of Education reported in 1938 that Houston County had 32 buildings for 1,825 African-American students. The county didn't own those buildings. Private people did. 28 of those buildings were owned by trustees or private groups, and this included 16 one-room churches wow. that functioned as schools. None of these had more than two rooms. That's right. Ten had no heat at all. Twenty had a stove, and two had steam heat, so they were kind of real buildings at the time wow. with steam heat, with a boiler in the basement. What's even more disturbing to me personally is the sanitation facilities and water access. Half of these schools, 16, had what they called surface toilets. These were privies, latrines, that may have had a bucket under the seat, but frequently didn't. So it just fell under the ground. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And these are, these are all the kids in the community that are coming up to yeah. these schools. Yeah, they're going to school. Yeah, yeah. Well, this wasn't that unusual. There was a big push in the 1920s uh, to create the, the home demonstration agents and county agents uh, went on kind of a, a, a mission to create sanitary privies. And what were sanitary privies at that point? They were on a concrete pad and they were a pit latrine. Well, these were still on the surface. And so there may be a bunch of water all around them, you know, because as you walk in and you stop, you kind of dig a little hole to get in, and these don't move, you know. The idea was that there were supposed to be buckets there that were going to be pulled out, but eventually there are no buckets. Oh. And some of them were pit latrines. Eight were pit latrines. Six of these 32 buildings had no restroom facilities at all. That, mean they were, that means they were going out in the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, one of these schools had water available to it on the grounds. Two dozen others had water nearby. They didn't complain about it. Say, yeah, just go over there and get water. And seven of them used a well bucket. They brought water back in well buckets. They didn't have running water to the facility. They, they brought it back in well buckets. Four of them used a spring and eight of them had a pump. Again, not wow. that unusual. It sounds terrible to us, and, and it, it kind of is terrible, but not that unusual for living conditions, even as late as the 
the 1930s. Again, all of this information is coming out of a, of a report from the Alabama Department of Education in 1938, but still very primitive, very primitive. Eventually, the state school board in 1939 abandoned 27 of those 32 buildings and said no more school in these buildings. It, were, it really was an uh, issue trying to consolidate schools and to take them under the wing of the county and the state. Um, the county had gotten Public Work Administration funds to build four new schools, including a three-room metal-roofed high school in Columbia for African Americans going from the 7th through the 12th grade. And that's the school that Mabel and Ufie Weems graduated from in 1941. Wow. What a story. 20, 20 years later, the State Department of Education conducted a second survey that recommended abandoning that school because it had gotten old, it had aged out. Instead, they bust 100 junior high and 48 senior high students from Columbia a number of miles over to Ashford, Alabama. Eventually, they erected a modern elementary school with at least six classrooms on the site. So what we would consider now to be a fairly small elementary school then was Enormous. the new and modern big deal school. Anyway, so that's the story of these two photographs. And as much of the information as I could get from behind them, but again, I've just scratched the surface. And I would love it if somebody who had an interest in this kind of historical work would find out more about our community by finding out more about the Weems family. Fantastic. This is so interesting to me that two photographs can have this much of a story to tell. That is, that is fascinating, and it just goes to show how important preserving our history is. And again, that's one of the things that we try to do with the Wiregrass Archives, preserve the community's history and, and their stories that go along with that history. We say that we identify, preserve, and make available the records of importance to the local community. So we've reached the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the Wiregrass Archives. There is still so much to discover and so many more stories to be told on this podcast. You can find more information on your own at troy.edu slash wiregrassarchives. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend, and we'd love it if you left a review at the App Store. It helps other people find the show. I'm Greg Phillips, joined as always by Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama. This episode was recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio and produced by Joey Hudson. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back again soon to tell you another story, and you'll know it came from the archives.